Hello, listener. Uh, before we start the show, I just want to remind you that this podcast is entirely independent and simply subscribing to us on whichever platform you're listening on makes a huge difference and ensures that you can see whenever we publish a new interview, which will hopefully be more frequent moving forward. You can also give us a review, share episodes with friends and comrades, and follow the podcast on social media. And of course, supporting over on Patreon is a great way to help fund equipment and helps pay for the labor that goes into making this. Now on with the show. Welcome to Praxis, a podcast where we chat with organizers and activists around the world to discuss the local conditions of the struggles they're engaged in, their aims and objectives, and the tactics and strategies they employ to realize them. I'm your host, Lucasi, and today we're delighted to welcome Valeria Lacou from El Sindicato de Equilinas de Madrid, or the Madrid Tennis Union. Valeria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Before we launch into the interview, I think it would be good to give our listeners a broad overview of the history of housing in Spain before we go on to talk about the union specifically. Unlike other European countries, such as Germany, where I'm based, uh, in Spain, homeownership has historically been the more dominant form of housing provision. Homeownership appears to have served a number of political objectives, uh, particularly under the dictatorship of Francisco Franco, who sought to cultivate a home-owning constituency that would both validate and reproduce the regime. In the early post-Civil War period, Madrid changed quite dramatically through significant demographic changes due to the inward movement of people from rural Spain, or El Campo, into the city. The squalid conditions that people were living in was raising concerns for the dictatorship. And so the regime took a proactive and interventionist approach to ensure that the majority of Spaniards could feasibly become homeowners. Homeownership, it was thought, precludes the potential radicalization of a precarious population without assets, while simultaneously using indebtedness to discipline mortgage holders. Franco famously said, one more owner, one less communist. And in the late 1950s, the then Minister for Housing and radical phalangist, José Luis Arate, said, we do not want a Spain of proletarians, but of owners. During the 1960s and 70s, Government subsidies enabled developers to offer prices significantly below market rates. And while private banks largely refrained from offering mortgages to the working class until the late 1980s, the Spanish Mortgage Bank, a public institution, stepped in to fill the role. So we can see very early on how the state has always played a very active role in cultivating what we know as this typical home ownership model of Spain. With the end of the dictatorship and the beginnings of neoliberalism, there was a further expansion of home ownership facilitated by deregulation. Mortgages were available to a greater section of the population due to credit standards being steadily lowered and the poor securitization of these loans. By 2007, on the eve of the financial crisis, 87% of Spanish households were homeowners, until 7.6% lived in the private rental sector. Contrast this with the contemporary situation in Germany, in which less than half the population owned their own home, and you get an understanding of these numbers. Following the Great Recession of 2008, we saw a huge number of foreclosures on low-income and middle-income households, which directly contributed to an increase in those seeking to rent. Concerning renting, as per the urban leasing law, 
Up until the 1990s, rents were capped and there was little incentive to enter the rental market as a property owner. However, in 1994, five-year tenancy periods were established and rent increases were pegged to the consumer price index. This was then further watered down in the post-crash period, when in 2013, rental agreements became solely a contract between two parties. Rent increases are then no longer limited to consumer price indexes, and express evictions are permitted under certain circumstances. These liberalisations of the urban housing law have been further compounded by the selling off of large portfolios acquired by the state in the post-crash period due to the mass number of foreclosures that occurred during that time. All of this combined has led to a much more attractive environment for investment and has seen a number of new international players enter the stage, such as American investment and asset management firm Blackstone, who have set up in Spain a real estate investment fund, colloquially known as a vulture fund. With a huge increase in renting, especially from younger generations, the dynamic in Spain has changed dramatically and more and more people are fighting against an increasingly exploitative rental environment, which is where the tenant union comes in. We'll discuss a little later how the tenants union has met this challenge and indeed how the tenants movement was born out of these challenges. But for now, I'd like to discuss the impact this change in renting and housing in general has affected those living in Madrid and Spain more broadly. Valeria, maybe you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, sure. That was a great uh, that was a great summary of what has been going on for the past 50, 60 years in Spain and how we <laughs> Thank <you>. and, <laughs> and how we 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 came to the situation we are facing right now, right? And why the tenants union and tenants unions in general such a key such a key agent, no political agent in this in this situation. Um so yeah, as you said, like of course Spain is still an extremely like um, property-focused society, right? And still property ownership is seen as like the dream socially, right? And there's still this this uh, this understanding that that is the, the the main objective and the main goal in life, right? You should aim to, to, to own property at some point in your life. But what the reality is that the, for the majority of, of us, little by little, that is not going to be an option anymore right and we're not even talking about like political approaches like there's many of us who are against property like private property as a as a as a thing in itself right but it's not even thinking it's not even like that approach it's like is that the reality Mm -hmm. is that most of us won't be able to to get that right so the the Renting in the end is the only solution and is the only option a lot of us mm-hmm. and an ever increasing portion of the population have as an option to access housing, right? And to actually right. have the opportunity to, to live our lives in a place in which we can, we can develop ourselves, we can grow, we can plan however we want to plan our, our life projects, right? And I believe like you, you, you did a really good summary there, but I guess like what is really important for us is to acknowledge that like after the crisis, right? After the, the crash in 2008 and everything that came afterwards, like that's when the thing, like the situation really started to shift, right? And that's when we really understood that we needed to focus on the fact that renting and the rent market, the private rent market was playing a key role in capital accumulation, right? Like in the end, the, right. the, the housing stru- like market and its structure changed massively in 2013 when, when as you said, like these investment funds and these big uh, property owners, owners came into the private market and completely shifted the way rent was understood in Spain, right? And nowadays, like rent is still seen 
as something that is essential in recovering the economy and sustaining the economy. But that only happens because we, as tenants and renters, are constantly being exploited by our landlords, right? And that is the power dynamic that we directly need to acknowledge and also fight actively. And mm -hmm. that's what we are trying to do from the union, right? Because in the end, we also need to understand that that renter population that's massively increasing little by little, uh, you mentioned no, like 6% at some point nowadays, we are in around like 30% in some cities and it's growing, right? Like in Barcelona, it's right. around 30%. In Madrid, it's around 25%. And most of us are like young people, migrants, racialized people, right? So we need to acknowledge that it's, of, it's always us, the, the, the ones who have less privileges in a, in a capital world who, who are also like destined to this only option, right? So we need to actively fight it. Yeah, and I think it brings into stark relief the existing disparities that exist in uh, Spanish society, as you mentioned, amongst the poor, the young, the racialized. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned that it's not necessarily just around the kind of provision of housing. So it's a move from this model to that model, but rather it's a question of capital accumulation and how when you approach this phenomenon like that, you can really understand how it moves and how it contorts through these various historical moments through which it's moving. And in doing so, you're then able to take it head on as opposed to just demanding, we want better housing, can you give it to us please? Before we move on, I'd just like to ask to speak a little bit more about how the union began, uh, how it was formed and by whom, uh, what existing structures there were with regards to tenant organizing beforehand uh, in the absence of a tenant union and uh, the relationship to other social movements in the post-crash period. I'm thinking of the Indignados movement, mm -hmm. or also known as the 15th of May movement, and other formations around that period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, even nowadays, the housing movement, like, more broadly in Spain is quite diverse, right? And, and you have, like, under this umbrella of the right to housing, right, or the right to decent housing, you have many different profiles or, like, political um, approaches coexisting. All of them somehow anti-capitalist, that's for sure. <laughs> but, like, there's, 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 a, there's, a big, uh, there's a big diversity underneath. So I guess it's important to, to acknowledge that um, a movement that was key at the beginning uh, of the housing movement in Spain, and also that is key, like in 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 the like when I when acknowledging that tenants union exists today, is the LAPA, no? What's what's called in Spanish LAPA, la plataforma de afectados por las hipotecas, which in English we translate as the platform of people affected by mortgages, right? So um, this right. is like um, like. I think the name is quite self-explanatory, but in the end, uh, after the big economic crash in 2008, in Spain, we had a huge, uh, a horrible housing crisis due to evictions, right? A lot of people, because no. because families was were like highly uh, indebted, 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 well, had a lot of debt <laughs> in, in the <laughs> 2000s. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a data point that it's always super surprising for me, like in average, Average people had like people were indebted like 140 percent of their incomes, right? Wow. So like, so yeah. like debt was huge in Spain, and of course the reality wasn't this just in Spain, but in Spain it was a big structural problem. So what happened is that after the economy crashed, and and the approach that the institutions decided to take was to save the the the, the financial sector rather than the people. Over a million evictions were 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 yeah. Well, over a million 
households were evicted during yeah. those first uh, years after the after the the crash. So La Pa, what they did is that they they became the first legitimized housing movement in Spain, right? So they were like mm. once again like a very horizontal mutual aid approach um, to to people who were really facing an eviction, right? So by by pacific direct action by um collectivizing like what was supposed to be an individual problem right like you are the one who signed uh, papers at the bank and that's your problem no that was a collective structural problem because we were put into that situation right and we were taken advantage of by like the finance system so that's what like they, they they managed to make of it like a collective problem and little by little gain legitimacy in society right and in a few years they managed to make of the banks and the investment funds a common enemy for Spanish society, right? So so when you would see an eviction on TV or you would see an eviction in your neighborhood because they were so common, like everyone knew someone who was going through an eviction process, like the, the social um, opinion was quite homogenous, right? That like the, the ones that had been wronged were the people, right? And the enemy was the, the, the banking system and the finance system. So of course, like the tenancy nowadays, like... Um, has inherited a lot of that, right? Like La Paz was key in 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 starting to to create a housing movement that was massive, like a mass movement around housing mm-hmm. rights in Spain. And of course, it was extremely linked. You mentioned as well the the Indignados movement, the fifteenth of May, no, M, and all of that, the big occupation of Seoul, and everything that came afterwards. And yes, of course, it, it was like part of the effects of that M was also the the big association association uh, movement that came afterwards, right? Like beyond Podemos and the institutional view, uh, I mean, the institutional um, path that that also followed. It's also true that the Quinceme, what it managed to to create was a big association um, culture in in Madrid, in Spain, in in the neighborhoods, no? And, And La Paz was extremely linked to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, La Paz had a number of serious victories as well under their belt. Um, maybe you can tell us a bit about that. Well, the, the biggest victory is that like thousands and thousands of evictions were stopped just because like, La Paz managed to truly mobilize people against that injustice, right? So like the evictions were stopped because hundreds of people just stood right there in front of the police, in between the police and the door of that house. And they stopped, like they physically with their bodies stopped the eviction. So that in itself were like huge victories that they managed to repeat over and over again, thousands of times. And nowadays they still happen, right? Like nowadays when there's an eviction going on, like a a, a stop desaucios, a stop eviction, which is called like this, uh, Mm -hmm. this event in particular, like they are still being organized every now and then and they are successful, right? Uh, but then, of course, as you say, there, there have also been like big uh, victories, especially at an institutional level, right? Like when, when in the end, like there, there are some legal reforms were won that would pr- further protect people against these um, evictions and against like this fraud, right? That like the, the banks kind of put on them. So I guess that there were a few like, um, I would say like, yeah, these changes would be, for example, there was a, a code of conduct, like a good practice code of conduct kind of thing that banks have to respect whenever there's an eviction process. So, so there are certain steps they need to make 
in order to, I mean, before they actually have the right to ask for an eviction, right? So there needs to be right. some kind of mediation. There needs to, so it's like, it's little reforms like that. But to be honest, we also need to acknowledge that nowadays evictions are still legal, right? And, yeah. and, and that is the big, that is the, the big goal that we need to, to, to manage to win, right? Like no one should mm-hmm. be allowed to be kicked out of their home just because mm-hmm. they cannot pay it. Like having a place to live is much more important than protecting someone's mm. private property, whoever that someone is. Yeah. And so I guess the main focus being anti-eviction coming from a home ownership movement can easily then be replicated. So it's kind of not a surprise that the union was born within that movement. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about those early days? Uh, my understanding is that the tenants union began in 2017. Mm-hmm. Like what were the specific challenges building a union from scratch because where I'm based in Germany, we have these like major tenants unions that are all like hundred years old plus, um, and they kind of operate mainly in this kind of business unionism way where it's kind of a legalistic service that's being provided to you, mm-hmm. uh, which is fine if you're an individual with specific needs. Mm-hmm. Of course, yours is the type of tenant union that you've built up from the ground. And so I'm just curious as to how it was formed. And then during those early stages, what tactics and strategies you employed. Um, I understand that there was tenant or there is tenant clinics that you have or assemblies, as you call them in Spanish. But maybe you could just tell us a little bit about those, because in Ireland, where I come from, we also conducted tenants clinics, uh, which were kind of a precursor to the tenants union, CATU. And that's a similar age and background to the one that you have there in Madrid. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, as I said, like, like La Paz was key in the housing movement, but as you mentioned, like it was very much, much focused on, on evictions and on this like home ownership gone wrong kind of thing, you know, project. Um, but it's true that like in, in 2017, in the end, like a few, I wasn't, I wasn't organized in the union back then, but a few colleagues who were part of the housing movement already, then suddenly realizing, like they started realizing this, this shift in the market I was telling you about earlier, right? And suddenly acknowledged that rent and the rent market was playing a very specific role in, in this like accumulation of capital. And that actually most evictions now were being linked to rent, not to, not to a mortgage anymore, right? Because right. La had managed to like somehow like, um, interfere in that like um, mortgages eviction process but then the rent world was still very much unorganized while us renters like that population was continuing growing because of course we didn't have access to credit anymore and all of those things right um and then also like um like by acknowledging like that that shift in the in the in the market and the and the material world no, and the material reality when talking about access to housing, there was also this process that was going on in, in Madrid and in many more um, urban cities or in around the world linked to gentrification and touristification, right? So, so some um, organized neighborhood associations from the center of Madrid were also key in those early, early days in the tenants union, right? Like in the end, we're talking about the center of Madrid, but particularly a neighborhood uh, called Lavapies, which historically has been like one of these like uh, neighborhoods, like in in many city centers, this happens, no? Like that it's mostly like um, 
the living conditions are not that awesome, right? Like it's mostly like poor people, migrant people, racialized people who live there, right? So, but then little by little is becoming a more interesting area because if it's, it's right in the center and little by little by, by this mm, dual mm, process of gentrification and touristification, right. the, the reality of the neighborhood starts changing. So once again, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, I was just going to say, so it was actually one of the, I guess, the key kernels of the union itself was this kind of anti-gentrification movement specifically mm-hmm. linked to this process. Okay, because that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So from from early, uh, from very early on, our approach has been a very holistic approach to housing, mm-hmm. uh, to, to the housing movement, right? Like in the end, like we are also a right to the city movement right like we, we we belong to that it's just like we are choosing the the we're choosing to organize in a in a union form right and to very clearly attack what we call rentism right like people living out of others rents uh as a way to 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 really try to get to to, to that bigger goal which is like actually gaining the right to the city for all of us and eventually like also overcoming capitalism right but like it's very strategic mm-hmm. like by understanding what the the material reality is right now in madrid then we have a very strategic approach to it right uh, but yes from very early on like that that was that was a an um an essential link the link between touristification and gentrification and the right to the city and the right to the city center for the for the for the local population and by local population, I mean Spanish people. I mean like the people who lived there, right? Yeah, and right. Um, and then and the 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 right to to housing, right? And the housing movement. So little by little, the tenants union started organizing there in the city center, right? And and it had a, a very creative approach to, as you said, like not only offering these tenant clinics as you call them. We we as you mentioned, we call them assemblies. Uh, assembleas, because in the end, what we what they consist of is like we we run like a mutual aid group, right? So you just you just come to an assembly. We all <laughs> sit in a circle, as you may imagine, an assembly, and we we share what our problems with with our landlords are, we, or with the hardship we we are going through when trying to find a house or gain access to to housing. And what we do is like we transform that individual project problem into a collective one by identifying that it's a structural problem, right? So what is happening to you doesn't happen only to you. And it happens because mm-hmm. it is the consequence of a very clear political project, right? Which yeah, is based yeah. on, as I mentioned, ca- capital accumulation and all of that. And so I assume that within those environments, um, there's a lot of like tactics and strategies uh, and also issues being highlighted. So if there's say a wrongful eviction being conducted by one person's landlord and then, you know, it's not necessarily the same person who's doing it to another person. You can share maybe ideas about how to combat that. And, you know, I assume that there's some kind of, you know, political education in these environments as well uh, about your rights and things like that. Would I be right in saying that it's yeah, yeah. purpose as well? Exactly, exactly. And that's the whole point, right? Like the 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 objective of, of our tenant union and the way we understand unionism as well is by not having specific experts, right? Or like, I know mm. we always start our, our assemblies by saying we are not social services. We are not the lawyer's office. We are not, mm. uh, you know, you're, we're not like a place where you come, you pay and you get some advice. No, no, we are a union. And our objective mm. is to 
politicize this structural problem in order to gain collective solutions for all of us, right? And to change and reform the housing system in Spain and in the whole world, right? Because in the end, this doesn't happen only in Spain. Like it, most of the key actors in Spain are international investment funds that do the same in Madrid, in Berlin, in London, or in uh, Buenos Aires, no? Like that—that that mm. is how it happens. Um, yeah, for sure. So um, that is key, like those assemblies. And also like something that was really important at the beginning of the Tenants' Union was to also acknowledge that like, La Paz did an awesome, an awesome job in legitimizing the, the, the housing movement, right? And legitimizing the struggle for the right to housing. But it's true that like one of the main struggles that they had to face was the fact that like there were experts somehow, right? Like in their assemblies, there were lawyers, there were activists who were much more professionalized in a way. And then there were the individual people who came with their mortgage problems and they found the, like, they found individual solutions in a collective way, right? And that is amazing. Like they, they managed to do something incredible. But what happened, and you mentioned this earlier, for example, Podemos existed, Podemos started. And, and that is something that um, in, in Madrid and particularly in Spain more generally, um, social movements really were transformed by that institutionalism, right? And by what we called municipalism right so suddenly like people from the social movements getting into the local institutions or state institutions in the in podemos case and trying to like make social changes from there right from the institutions and that has that has had its pluses and minuses we can analyze yeah. it very broadly in another episode if you want but the effect yeah. it had on the on the housing movement was that in the end a lot of the key people in la Paz ended up becoming part of these institutions right and then la Paz all of a sudden became very weakened so that yeah. was something that in a very early on in the, like when when the tenants union was was forming that was something that was acknowledged and then we tried to find solutions to it right so mm -hmm. our our approach from the beginning was to create and to focus on collective conflicts and that okay. was where we wanted to to that's where we wanted to start building people power right and also because it was very easy to 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 understand this um this comparison between labor unionism and what we were trying to build in the tenant union world, right? So in, in, a, in a workplace, it's very easy to, to identify that there is one boss and then many workers, right? And then the workers actually hold the power. And if the, you organize, you manage to overcome that power dynamic, right? Like we, 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 we can see that because the labor movement, uh, the labor union movement, have managed to put that image in our heads, right? So that's what we're trying to do and what we have been trying to do for the past six years with the Tenants Union as well. So it's first, we really focused on this collective conflict in which like these big property owners in Spain, they in the end had like thousands, right? Of, of renters under them. And that's where we can talk, for example, about Blackstone. Blackstone, yeah. it's an investment fund that, uh, and, uh, a United, an investment fund from, from the United States. And it came into Spain in 2013 because the, the, the local, like the region president in Madrid sold over, sold of almost 2000 
houses, like, well, units to Blackstone, right? It was around like 1,830 something. I don't remember the specific number, but close to 2,000, right? So they were sold. Right. It was public housing. It was how, uh, housing units that ha- were, ha- were built with public money. And then eventually mm-hmm. they were sold to this investment fund. Okay, yeah. fast forward 10 years. This happened in 2013. Now it's 2023. Blackstone is the biggest mm, landlord in Spain. And it yeah. owns over 40,000 units, right? Yeah. So there's a potential of 40,000 renters that we can organize. Yeah, well, this is the interesting thing. And I'm glad that you mentioned it because there is this kind of double-edged aspect to this, uh, to this development because of this kind of, um, with these large landlords, it obviously provides major issues in terms of, you know, the provision of affordable housing. Um, but in the inverse, it's also a hugely strategic advantage. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this in other cities outside of Spain, but particularly in Madrid, because of this concentration of ownership, mm-hmm. you can really do that traditional aspect of, you know, pointing to the common enemy and mobilizing against it, exactly. and really weakening them with that. Uh, and I think that's great. Before we move on to Blackstone in particular, though, I was just curious about, you know, the mode in which you grew the movement. And so like, how did you actually develop and grow membership? Was it through these assemblies where you have people coming with their problems? Is that your recruitment strategy? Or how did you, you know, get people on board? And uh, maybe a second part of that question is, you know, if you're a rank and file union where collective action and collective decision making is cardinal, I understand that you have this this collection of membership dues, mm-hmm. uh, so to keep the wheels in motion. In what way do you, when you're engaging with people who are not affiliated with the union, but are coming to you with problems, uh, how do you navigate that kind of that maybe tension between those who are who are in and ho- those who are currently outside of the the, the institution itself? Yeah. Well, it's not easy. <laughs> Let's start there, <laughs> right? right. It, like, in the end, we, we have to acknowledge that after 50 years of neoliberalism and many more years of, like, capitalism and liberalism and all of that, it's it's whenever we, we, we hear the word collective, we hear the world right for all, right? Like, do a bit for you and do a bit for everyone else. Like, it's hard to get people into that mood, right? And we have to acknowledge that. We have to be very honest with how hard this 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 job is, right? How hard it is to, to manage to get there. But, well, if you believe in the project, project you, you'll do it in the end, right? Um, so I guess, yeah, one, one thing that we've uh, recognized is that, like, it is essential to connect first with the shame that exists, still exists in Spain for being renter, right? When, when you live in a property society, in a property-focused society, being a renter is seen as a failure, right? It's seen as like you, you haven't succeeded in your life project, which was that you were supposed to have a house by I don't know what age, right? So there is a specific shame that sadly we, we hold, right, and we carry around. And then on the other side, there's the rage, Right there's the there's the anger, the there's the all these negative emotions that you experience when you realize that you get paid and the next day half of your salary has to go towards your rent, right? Mm-hmm. Or when you're facing a landlord that doesn't um, doesn't actually like obey, like doesn't doesn't do what they have to do, right? Like maybe there you have a massive I know improvement to be made to your to your to your flat and your landlord doesn't do it. 
right? And you're like, man, you're, I'm giving you half of my salary and you still have the, the, the privilege to just don't give a shit, sorry for the expression, right? So I guess like for us, it's really important to acknowledge that, right? Like how to work with shame and with rage in order to canalize that towards power, right? And to we're organizing right. power. Um, and that was also one of the of the key of the key differences um, that uh, that I guess like the, the the tenants unions in in Spain and the one in Madrid have in comparison to other like housing movements or other like more local housing groups right like self organized groups and it's partic- and it's particularly that right like we we do not organize only around evictions which is in the end the last point right like it's it's a very Mm, urgent like emergency move right like someone is going to be evicted you have to do something about it bim bam boom mm-hmm. you already have your 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 protocols you already have your ways of action and you do it yes but falling into that dynamic doesn't allow you to plan further right to have a bigger strategy or a more a long-term plan so what we realized is that we needed to develop um tools right we needed to develop like collective fighting tools for the very different conflicts that you can create between a renter and a landlord right and that is that like in the end our our approach is like we need to generate conflict constantly because by generating okay. conflict it's how you canalize you you channel not canalize wow i said it like <laughs> that was a direct like direct translation from spanish you channel that shame and that rage into political action so yes okay. the fact that your landlord doesn't give you the deposit back although you did everything you were supposed to do well we need to channel mm-hmm. that rage into political action. The fact that your landlord doesn't solve a problem, the fact that your landlord, you know, like all these little things that you wouldn't say, ah, it's so hard to politicize this. Yes, it may be hard, but if you develop tools for those things and you say, hey, come to the union, I will help you gain power against your landlord and actually stand up for your rights. Okay, Mm. maybe you start with a very human rights approach, which is not the approach we want to eventually have, right? By little by little, it's easier to transform that into a political project that uh, wants to overcome capitalism in the end, right? That's really interesting because it kind of leads me to the next topic I'm curious about. And that's uh, one specific tactic that I've come across of yours that I thought was interesting enough to bring up was these uh, brigades, Mm -hmm. these tenant brigades, which even the language is quite militant, which I always love to see. Um, but you've begun organizing relatively recently, my understanding, uh, is that these brigades, um, these brigadas uh, inquilinas, I can't speak Spanish, I never studied it, my apologies. <laughs> it's okay, you're doing great, you're doing yeah. great. But my understanding is that you're organizing um, entire blocks or, or buildings with a common owner. So obviously this is something that could never be done in the years previous, but obviously now it's depressingly easy to do. You know, you look at one building, you can almost assume it's owned by one company, a faceless company, be it a Blackstone or, or what have you. So I'm just wondering about the success of this approach. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I understand that you've had a victory against uh, Blackstone relatively recently. Mm-hmm. Was that a kind of an outgrowth of these tenant brigades? Hmm. Maybe you can speak about the tenant brigades and the success of that Blackstone campaign specifically. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, they are definitely linked, but I would say the, the order is the, the inverse one, right? So first we had our conflict okay. against Blackstone. We learned a lot from it 
And then we, we, we run a, an analysis trying to understand what tools we could get out of that conflict and apply more widely to other conflicts that didn't exist yet. Right. Okay. So. As you mentioned, yes, um, the, the housing market, the private uh, rent market in, in Madrid is extremely, extremely, extremely controlled by what we call like uh, multi-renters, right? Like multi-landlords, multi right? Like people who have m multiple properties, so they have more than one tenant, right? Um, but before, before getting to this analysis and before acknowledging that that was a huge window of opportunity to, to generate conflict, which in the end is our, our objective, right? To, to just generate conflict because that's how you also generate, uh, people power. Is that like we started with the, with the Blackstone conflict, right? And the first run, I mean, the first, um, yeah, the first Blackstone conflict we, we had started in 2019, right? So we're going four mm. years ago. And we had like, um, one good thing about the tenant union is that we, we started as a, as a tenant union for the whole region of Madrid, right? Not only the city, not only a neighborhood, it, which is how historically the housing movement has organized itself, very linked to a neighborhood, very linked to like the, the specific reality of that region or that area, which is awesome. And it's, it's something that lately we have also understood, understood that we cannot lose. But at the same time, our approach from the beginning was like, we need to have a, a, a bigger range, right? We need to, to reach the whole region. And actually not only the whole region, but the whole state. The Madrid Tenant Union was born at the same time as the Barcelona Tenant Union. Like we were literally yeah. presented in the same day in 2017. And from the very beginning, we have worked very, very closely despite our very different political context. And nowadays, for example, a few months ago, we had um, we had a meeting with like, seven different tenant unions around the, 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 the state of Spain, right? Like the Spanish state. So in Granada, in Zaragoza, in Malaga, right? Like in different cities. So that is also our aim to have tenant unions in every city in Spain and for us to be organized at the state level as right, right? As well, right? right? Because it's, it's a bigger issue, the structural issue. But sorry, as I was mentioning, we were born as a, as the, the tenant union for all of the region. So that was amazing because it was, easy for us to to connect people who had the same landlord as you mentioned right so suddenly for example we had 10 people from torrejon which is a, a city in the outskirts of madrid in the east coming to the union and saying hey our landlord wants to raise our rent by a hundred percent right they want to double and we don't know what to do and then suddenly we have five people from getafe in the south coming and saying hey our landlord is doing the same and then suddenly you have two people from I know Alcorcón also in the south. And then all of a sudden we as a tenant union realize, wow, you all share the same landlord. What can we do about this? Well, right. this is a great opportunity, right? And what we do is like we actively look for other people who have the same landlord. And all of a sudden we have a group of a hundred people who are willing to go on a partial rent strike in order to make their landlord um agree to a collective negotiation, which has also always been our approach, right? Like we are deeply inspired by revolutionary uh, labor movement and labor unions mm -hmm. who always aim for this collective negotiation and these collective solutions to, to individual problems because in the end they are collective problems as well, right? So, um, and then what happened that that common landlord was Blackstone. So all of a sudden we were like, okay, wow, we are a two year old union 
tenants union, very grassroots, very small, but still with the big hopes, fighting against the world's largest landlord. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they practically own most of my home city. It's uh, mad. Exactly. But then what we managed to like by by really focusing on the campaign and here also um, what was really important both in early stages, but also nowadays, like we are very aware of that is the way is the, the role that media, the media plays in all of this. Right. So from the very beginning, we we've been great. I'm just going to say <laughs> we've been really good at 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 really using the media and using both TV, radio, written, uh, press, both friends, right? Like media who are more like politically aligned with us and also those who aren't to really be interested in what was going on. And by having that focus on us, right? By having that spotlight, we we not only managed to put a lot of pressure on Blackstone in this case, right? Because we were using the name of Blackstone as a way of, um, showing the, the world or showing Madrid what was going on with the rent market, but also to little by little start shifting and also start um, putting our little seeds in people's minds, right? So in the same way that La Paz did it at the beginning of the 2010s with mortgages, we do it with, with rents, right? And for example, we have managed that like nowadays, 70%, like a, a, a survey that was the results were published a few months ago, over 70% of the population in Spain believe that the rent market should be regulated, right? And it shouldn't be liberalized. It shouldn't be just like a free market, but it should, le- right. it should be actively regulated by the state. And that is something that we managed to do by little by little, putting those seeds in people's minds through the media. So after su- our success, with just connecting back to your question, and I'll, I'll stop it here. After the success of the Blackstone um, struggle, which went on for two years, and after two years of people being on this partial rent strike. Can you maybe tell us what you mean by uh, partial rent strike? I'm saying partial rent strike because here we developed a very specific tool by our legal team really analyzed the law the housing loan Spain and found little black holes that we could use for our advantage, right? So we realized that actually, as long as you don't fall into not paying your rent, you cannot be evicted for not paying. Oh, right. Okay. Exactly. But what happens here is that like uh, these renters, for example, they had, um, they had, uh, I know they were paying a specific amount, let's say, I know, 500 euros, for example, for the place. And Blackstone wanted to raise it to 900 euros, which was market price, right? So they said, no, we're not going to do it. And this is our tool. This is the strategy we'll develop, the collective strategy, right? That is called Nos Quedamos, which, which literally means we are staying, but we, yeah. we, we've translated into Spanish, into English as stay put. Right. So like I'm, okay. I'm, I'm just saying that. So what happens that instead of signing a new contract and accepting those 900 euros, you stay in your house, you don't sign a new contract. So you are what is called out of contract, right? Like your contract mm-hmm. doesn't exist anymore, but you continue paying those 500 euros. So that's why okay. we're calling it like a partial rent strike, right? Because you are not accepting the new price and you are continue paying because you don't want to be evicted. And you, yeah. we, we use it as a as a pressure tool because during those two years in which like Blackstone has to go through all the legal system to manage to evict us because we have broken the contract or there's no contract anymore, 
that's yeah. where like the fact that like the Spanish legal system is so slow, <laughs> it's an advantage for us. Yeah. So during those two years, they are not earning those extra 400 euros a month. So it's a huge right. pressure tool and they have to sit down and talk to us. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, well done on using that to your advantage uh, that it worked back in 2019 uh, in your favor. And I think it kind of goes back to this replication of the more successful aspects of traditional workers' unions, you know, which obviously leverages the productive capacity of the workforce. And, mm-hmm. you know, in this regard, just withholding capital in order to in order to achieve, you know, um, those aims. Uh, which leads me on to my last point, which is uh, something that I've noticed both in your specific rhetoric today, and then also in the literature that you guys have published on your website. And it, this is the revolutionary horizon of possibility that you focused on, uh, which is actually, you know, distinctive enough. Uh, I know a lot of examples of unions, uh, tenants unions uh, that exist in other countries with sim- similar you know, rank and file tactics who uh, don't employ this language. But I think it's really important and it's kind of what distinguishes uh, your your tenants union and uh, which is kind of, yeah, re- revolutionary anti-capitalist rhetoric. And so how do you see the, the tenants union as a tool for revolutionary action insofar as it challenges and exposes, you know, speculative financialized housing? You know, our generation will be disproportionately renters, typically classed under, you know, the precarious, forgive me. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see that then as a kind of a way to capture this historically unorganized youth uh, in Spain and maybe mobilize them towards a more radical horizon? And if that is indeed the project, rather than just, you know, getting better conditions for housing, in what way do you envisage, you know, your interactions with other groups, not only at the political level, but also, you know, for organizations such as yours at the grassroots level? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very interesting question. And um, it's also one that we, we, it's a big debate we have within the union as well, and not only within the union, but also within the housing movement, right? Like, what is the role of the union within achieving that bigger, like this big world revolution, right? And um, and what are the steps we need to take? And what is the strategy we want to follow? And what is our midterm, short-term, long-term plan, right? Because that is, and, and that is once, I say, once again, like, as I say, like a big debate we have. And I don't think we we have um, managed to fully pinpoint like what our approach as a union is, right? Like in the end, we, we, we are also a diverse union, like with, with very diverse people in it. Um, so what is clear is that like, yes, a lot of us have, have a very big, like revolutionary approach to it, right? And, and as you said, like the, the goal is anti-capitalist, but it's very important, as I mentioned earlier, to acknowledge what reality we live in, right? And nowadays, the word revolution, the word anti-capitalist, the word communism, the word socialism, like all these uh, terms, sadly, hold a very specific meaning, right? And have very specific um, nuances attached to them in society, in broader society. Right. I'm not talking about people who, who are already politicized, people who already are a militant or an activist in a specific group. I'm just talking about like, if you stop someone random on the street and start a conversation, where will that lead? If you start talking about a communist revolution, for example. Right. And we need to understand that because in the end, the revolution cannot be just rhetoric. Right. Yeah. You, you cannot just like put out there the idea, but, then, uh, but like not really link, link it to a specific 
praxis, huh? Where are we? Mm -hmm. In which podcast are we? <laughs> <laughs> but like, not like, and we have to be aware of that, that like you, you do not build a revolution or spark a revolution by just talking about it. You need to yeah. really do the grass grassroots work and you really need to shape people's minds and realities little by little, sadly, no? And it's hard mm. work. And we are, go ahead, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, no, no. It's interesting that you should say that though, because it is one of those big challenges. It's like, well, if and when we do employ this kind of rhetoric, mm -hmm. if it's going to alienate people, mm -hmm. it's just empty rhetoric and it doesn't actually have a political program behind it. But then there's also, you know, we don't have time to get into this entirely today, but there's mm -hmm. also this question of, you know, is this would-be revolution moving towards a horizon that's already defined, or is this an organic revolution that produces its reality as it emerges? Mm -hmm. And it, I think the latter is probably, in my opinion, more of a convincing hypothetical um, of how societies are being built up. And so one thing I'm curious as to, are you rooting the union in a certain kind of revolutionary practice insofar as like other unions in the US, for example, like the ILWU, mm -hmm. uh, which historically have taken political stances on issues such as Israel-Palestine, Black Lives Matter, where they famously shut down the Oakland port in 2020 during the George Floyd um, uprisings. This kind of revolutionary shop floor unionism mm -hmm. that's like has a huge leverage in power that they kind of like use to stop the import and export of goods and services mm -hmm. able to maintain this kind of very revolutionary practice through this. And I guess I'm just curious if you envisage incorporating these kind of tactics at a future point, insofar as it's not just purely focusing on like, you know, leveraging power to win victories for tenants, but also leveraging power to win victory for the working class and a socialist revolution more broadly. Mm -hmm. And do you see that kind of as a potential horizon? in organizing young people at a mass level, considering <clears throat> their position as renters is more, you know, clearly defined than, than that as, as workers, considering the historically low union density that we that we find ourselves in, you know, we can't necessarily recreate the conditions of the 20th century. So I'm just curious um, if you see this as an antidote using this kind of like large density of renters, mm -hmm as opposed to, you know, density as workers in, in a union? Yes, 100%. Yes, yes, yes. The answer is yes. And I wouldn't say it's it's just that, like we envision it as something to do in the future. It's something we believe we are already trying to do, right? Like by, by actively calling people to stand up against these like exploitative power dynamic that in the end exists uh, between a landlord and a renter. Like in the end, we do understand the, the like this, tenant movement struggle as a class struggle, right? But it's just like we have to be a bit more dynamic in what we understand uh, or how how uh, diverse that working class versus that elite is, right? Like right. It's like saying proletarian and bourgeoisie maybe doesn't work so well in 2013, in 2023, but saying renter and landlord works as a representation of that. And then little by little, you start building a bigger rhetoric, no? So yes, 100%, we do believe that the, the direct actions we, we engage in, not only like these partial rent strikes, our job, objective in the end, our goal is to do like full rent strikes, right? But once we have in, we are in a position in which we can actually maintain mm -hmm. that collective power, right? Um, but also like many other things, right? Like standing up to specific dynamics in between you and your and your landlord, especially when your landlords are these big corporate funds that are completely uh, maintained or uh, on our work, right? Like we are paying them half of our salary. Uh, yes, we're directly kicking 
their capital accumulation uh, with our actions. And also what you're saying um, about like broadening the, the range of objectives, right? And not only follow, focusing on like the housing rights or improving our living conditions. Um, but yes, we are also very aware that like we need to go outside, right? Quote unquote. And it's, it's what we called here in Spain, like the, the sectorial right like movements like you just focus on a specific sector and now like it, it is some one of the objectives we we have also identified and we are already working on within like in within the union which is like broadening that sector right and organizing outside our sector or at least connecting different sectors so for example we are already like working very closely with like more um grassroots revolutionary labor unions in spain and we're talking about systems of for example double affiliation right like double membership so yeah. you become at the same time a member of your labor union and of your tenant union because those struggles are connected right or we're thinking about like opening spaces like political spaces to get like physical spaces like a building an office uh, um and um, yeah, like a space we can use for our activities. So we further connect our our struggles, right? We're also running out, uh, like at the moment, we're putting together our anti-racist uh, strategy, right? So it's also identifying yeah. that like, if the majority of the renters and the tenants population is racialized or is migrant, there are very specific right. tools that we need to develop or that we need to take into account because most of these people uh, will be undocumented, will face um, like racism while trying to access uh, uh, housing and all of that, right? So we are already working with the anti-racist movement in order to connect these two struggles. Same with the feminist movement, same with the ecologist movement, right? Like all these things are connected and it's essential that we have a holistic approach to it because they are not separated struggles and we won't be able to, to just... Like if we don't connect them, we'll just fall into what you said, right? Into gaining very specific victories and reforms, which are needed and are useful because in the end they improve our right. living conditions. But the goal is bigger than yeah. that, right? And we need to yeah. understand that and build towards it. Great. Yeah. Well, I'm really grateful that you came to speak with us today, uh, Valeria. I was going to ask a little bit more about what your thoughts are with regards to the, uh, you know, government formation in Spain and whether yeah. Sumar and Pessoa are going to be able to resume their coalition with one another. But, um, you know, there's probably a dozen other podcasts who are asking those questions and answering them better than I can. Maybe I can get your thoughts on that in private after we finish uh, recording. But yeah, thank you so much, Valeria. It's been really wonderful having you on. And is there any place that people can find you online? Um, yes, as I think you mentioned our website early on. I guess the website is a great place to find our our articles, our news. We 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 maintain it very updated. Also on us on our socials, especially our Instagram is super fun. We have a lot of reels that uh, are not only tips but also like keep building on this idea of uh, really dismissifying the 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 landlord as something as something we should respect right and also for people who are on telegram we we have an official channel and we also share our updates constantly there so you can find all of this under the sindicato de inquilinas de madrid name or our socials are inquilinato mad which once again i'm sure you can somehow link and it's easier for people to follow. And just like a last call to say that like we also understand this struggle to be an international one. And what is going on in Madrid is not only going on in Madrid and it's not only going on in Spain, it's also 
going on in Berlin. It's also going on in New York. It's also going on in Buenos mm-hmm. Aires. So I guess I would also like to finish by by really, um, I don't know, really calling people to to join a tenants union in their in their home city or to create one. Like we are more than willing to support in that process. We have a lot of lessons learned, and we are also connecting already with ten- other tenants union, right, in Los Angeles, in uh, Kentucky, in many other places around Europe, because we believe that in the end the system is not only localized in our own countries, but it's much bigger and it's a global one, and it might be it's, it'll be much easier to fight if we do it together. So, yes, looking forward to that. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Well, again, Valeria, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, enlightening us as to the work that you're doing. Thank you, Luke. And good luck with the podcast. Looking forward to it. Mm-hmm.